Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Uh, you can turn with me your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 through 9 this morning of John's Gospel, uh, but I will read verses 1 through 18 to set the context. The witness of the word. We'll begin reading at verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light, uh, of of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for the ministry of the Word. We are thankful that the Word does go forth because it is the Word of the Word. We're thankful that it is the Word of the Son. It is Christ Jesus who speaks to us even now. We're thankful that he is the one who is the eternal Word. We are thankful that he is fully God. And we're thankful that it was that that second person, the son, took on a human nature. He assumed a human nature that he might live, die, and rise again for such undeserving uh, people like us. And we are thankful that we are not the light, but we are thankful that Christ is the true light. We are thankful, O O Lord, that salvation is not of us, but salvation is of you. And we're thankful that you are pleased to work your mighty work of salvation through means, especially through the ministry of the word, especially through gifts that have been given to your church, uh, namely men who've been set apart for the gospel ministry. We're thankful for those who love the light, who love to dwell in that light, who love Christ, who is the light, and love to hear that light speak to them each and every Lord's Day and speak to them in the word. We're thankful that you have done this. You have shone, you have uh, witnessed, and we're thankful for the many witnesses that testify to who the light is, to who Jesus is. And so we ask and pray that we would have a greater appreciation of the ministry of the word today, that we have a greater appreciation of our Christ and the salvation that is found in him. May we be a church that does shine as a city on a hill. May we be that golden lampstand. We know that Christ is in the midst of uh, the lampstands, but we ask and pray that Christ would shine in this place today as the word goes forth, that we would then shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation. So give us help from on high. Please send forth your spirit. Give us light from on high 
to better understand what your word says. There are difficult things in your word, but we're thankful that the things that pertain to salvation and pertain to life and godliness, those things are very clear. And so we ask that you would send forth your spirit to strengthen your saints this day. We pray that you would save sinners and work a mighty work, and we pray that you would be honored in all things, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it is important to know one's place in the world, and it is true also when it comes to the gospel ministry. Christ does call, Christ equips, and he sets apart ministers for the gospel ministry for his church. But it's important for ministers and for all of God's people to remember that ministers are not Christ. We must remember that ministers and all of God's people really are subordinate to Christ. Our purpose is to lift up Christ. Our purpose is to proclaim Christ. Our purpose is to point people to our Christ. And this is true of John the Baptist as well. He is the forerunner. He is the Elijah to come. He is the messenger of Malachi. And he really was a burning and shining light for the people of Israel who have been in darkness for 400 years. Here comes Malachi. Here comes, or, uh, here comes Malachi's messenger. Here comes Elijah. But the point that John is trying to highlight for us is that he is not the Christ. He is not the word. John's purpose is to point people to the Christ. The gospel of John, the author of the gospel, and John the Baptist. That is their sole purpose, to point people to Christ. And remember John's purpose in John 20, verses 30 and 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so we transition in John's gospel. We move from his divinity. Now we move into the incarnation. And so John starts his prologue with this high and lofty language about who Jesus is. Uh, but then he wants us to see the majesty and also the mystery and also the grace that we see it as God who dwells among his people. It is the one who was in the beginning, who was the word, who was God, is the one who takes on a human nature for such undeserving people like you and I. And it starts with John, who is this forerunner. Now, there is a problem that I think we can glean. I do try to glean problems so that we can try and solve them. But uh, one problem that we can glean in verses 6 through 9 is the problem of false witnesses about the word. There are true witnesses. There are true men. And it's also a problem to put those witnesses up on a pedestal. Uh, but there is also the problem of a false witness. There is one true light who reveals. He reveals through his own ministry. But he also reveals himself through the ministry of his appointed gifts. And the problem does seem to be when men reject that witness, when men reject the truth, when men reject Christ himself, when they reject Christ, even on in the gospel record, we see many men reject our Savior. In fact, we're going to see that next week, Lord willing, in verses 10 through 13. But we also see many men reject the witnesses of Christ. Many men reject the one who is the light and reject those who've been set apart to proclaim that light. So there's false witnesses about the word, but really it's a rejection further of the true witnesses that God has set apart. And so in verses 6 through 9, John begins to talk about the incarnation of the word and John who bears witness concerning the light. So we start with the precursor. We start with this forerunner, and we see he is not the light, but we see he proclaims the light. And so we'll look at this uh, discussion about John the Baptist under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the witness of the light in verses 6 and 7. And secondly, we'll see the identity of the light in verses 8 and 9. 
So the witness of the light, verses 6 and 7. Then we're going to see the identity of the light in verses 8 and 9. So witness and identity. Let's first look at the witness of the light in verses 6 through 7. Now again, context is important. As I said, verses 1 through 5 deal with the divinity of the word, who he is. We see his existence is eternal. We see God in himself. We see that the word is very God of very God. And then in verses 3 through 5, we see that the word is also creator. He is the one who makes all things. He is the one who governs all things. In him, all things consist. And so we see in verses 1 and 2, God in himself. And then we begin to see in verses 3 and following, God for us. When God creates the world, it is for us. And then we spit in God's face by sinning against God. And so what does God do? We see him for us in the salvation of elect sinners. So we do transition from the, the divinity of the word, the, uh, who the procession of the word, and now we come to the mission of the word uh, that does start with John the Baptist. We're dealing with the incarnation uh, in verses 6 and all the way to the end of the prologue. We see the preparation the reception, and the significance of his coming. But today we're dealing with that preparation. And notice it's kind of odd. We have this high and lofty language, but then we do transition to talk about John the Baptist. Now he's also going to be mentioned in verses 19 and following as well. Uh, but it's kind of an interesting place uh, that John puts this discussion about the one sent from God. And there are perhaps several reasons why. One, he is the forerunner. The forerunner of the word is here. He truly is the one promised to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, but more importantly, he wants us to see that he is subordinate to the word. And this is especially important for the followers of John. Now we see in verse 35 that some of Jesus' disciples were initially followers of John. But it's important to highlight that John himself was prophesied, was promised, and he is the one who fulfills an office, but he is not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the light. And so John puts this here as he's contrasting between the one sent, the one who came into being, and the one who always has been. And so we certainly see this. Verse 6, we see the witness who now is sent. Notice he is, there was a man sent from God. So John, the author, differs from the synoptics, the other gospels, uh, as he shows the subordination of John to Jesus. Again, John fulfills Isaiah 40. John knows that in verse 23. He knows he's Isaiah's wilderness man, the one crying in the wilderness. We see how Mark starts this way. We also see he's Malachi's messenger man in Mal Malachi chapter 3. And there we see another passage that highlights the divinity of Christ because God says, Yahweh says through Malachi, I will prepare, uh, uh, the messenger shall come to prepare the way before me. And so Jesus truly is God. Truly John the Baptist is preparing the way for God, preparing the way for the one who will come to his temple, the one who will come and be the temple. And it was 400 years prior to John the Baptist's coming. And we also know that he is Malachi or Malachi's Elijah as well from Malachi chapter 4, which we read at the outset. So he has come. He is the precursor, but he is subordinate uh, to the one whom he speaks about. But nonetheless, it is still a divine commission. There was a man sent from God. He was set apart. He was appointed. He was promised. We see this in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1. 
we see how the angel of the Lord appears to Zacharias, and Zacharias has to, God, the angel keeps his mouth shut for a long period of time before John is born. And so we see then Zechariah's prophecy talks about how he is going to be the prophet of the Most High, how he's the one who's going to prepare the way. It's the day really is dawning, but we're waiting for that sun to rise and that light to come. But we see that John the Baptist really is that one who begins to prepare that way. Because if you think of all of redemptive history like a clock, the Old Testament, they're in darkness still. I mean, there was glimpses of light. There's glimpses of hope. But then we see John the Baptist come on the scene. It's really been 400 years, and now there's one who is speaking. There's one who's proclaiming. There's one who is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so this is an important moment in redemptive history. John the Baptist is going to be that last prophet. And so the light is beginning to shine. The light is beginning to dawn until the actual light comes, and he then shines as a light. And certainly we see that the one who is the light, the true light, is Christ. John is a light, but he is not the true light. So he is sent by God. And notice whose name was John. And notice verse 7, this man came for a witness. Notice how the word was, but this one who is John, he came. And John even says, as we see in verse 15, uh, John the Baptist, as John the apostle records it. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So he's commissioned by God. The word is God. He is the one who is sent to prepare the way of the Lord. The word himself is the Lord. And so he is the one who is sent. But then we do see his purpose for coming in verse 7. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He came to be that witness. And certainly the idea of a witness would have been prevalent in the minds of Jews. Two or three witnesses. In the Old Testament, you could not prosecute someone except by two or three witnesses to corroborate evidence, to corroborate and show that this one truly is God, that this one truly is the light, there are going to be many witnesses. And there are many witnesses. And so he has come. John the Baptist is preparing the way. Uh, God himself is, has not left himself without witness. We see it in the creation of the world. We see God has not left himself without witness with the people of Israel. But there's greater witness now coming to show that this Jesus is the Christ. And his purpose was only to speak about Christ. And that's what he does, doesn't he? That's his witness. He speaks about Christ. How many times does he say in John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How often they ask him, Are you the Christ? He's like, No, I'm not. <laughs> he, knows he's Mal he's no, he, he knows he's Isaiah, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. He fulfills that. We see that in verse 23. Make straight the way of the Lord. He understands that very thing, that he is the forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord, and his purpose is to proclaim Christ, to proclaim the light, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He is not the Christ, but he bears witness concerning who that Christ is. And notice his purpose for proclaiming that all might through him might believe. Now, the through him here refers to John the Baptist. John has a specific ministry. It's not believing on John the Baptist, but through him, many would believe that John the Baptist would be an instrument in the hands of the Lord to spread the gospel. 
And when we consider uh, the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus, in reality, they are one and the same. We see John proclaims another, but Jesus proclaims himself. They're talking about the same thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that Jesus has lived, died, and rose again. And the all here, that all through him might believe, refers first of all to all those who would hear. John the Baptist's ministry is to whom? It is to the Jews. And then certainly in redemptive history, we see that uh, it starts with the Jews, the Jew first, and then the Greeks, which we see in the book of Acts as God spreads his glory and the gospel to the ends of the earth. But their ministry is one and the same. John has a specific place in redemptive history. That's why he's called the least. Those who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John. It's not that he's a bad guy. It's not as though he's not part of the new covenant by virtue of Christ. It's just that he's the last of the old covenant prophets. And he's highlighting the redemptive historical unfolding that there's a greater covenant that has come, a greater kingdom that has come in Christ Jesus. But John the Baptist comes and says to the Jews, repent, repent and be baptized, repent and be baptized and have the forgiveness of sins. Henry says, referring to all here, all through him might believe, that is that the Jews to whom he preached might, through his testimony, believe that Jesus was the light and true Messiah. The people are looking for a true Messiah. They're looking for a, sa a savior who would come and save his people. The Pharisees are going to reject him. I mean, John starts with high and lofty language about who Jesus is and who he is in his divinity, and starting with the incarnation, here is this precursor in this one, and then it's going to be a bit puzzling when we get to verse 10 and verse 11 and how he was not received. It shows the wickedness of man that here is God, here is the Savior of the people, and yet man rejects him. You see, man truly is desperately wicked. The heart of man truly is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So here is this true Messiah who has come. Henry goes on to say, for these words are to be taken in a limited sense and not to be extended to every individual of mankind, since millions were dead before John began his testimony, and multitudes then in being and since whom it never reached, nor can it design more than the Jews to whom alone he bore witness of Christ, and the faith which he taught and required by his testimony was an assent unto him as the Messiah." Though the preaching of the gospel is a means of true spiritual faith in Christ, and doubtless it was to many as preached by John. It points out the object of faith, Christ, and encourages souls to believe in Christ. And hence, gospel ministers are instruments by whom uh, others believe. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then is it considerable end of the gospel ministry answered? The word comes, here's the word of the Lord, here's the word that comes from John who proclaims the one who is the word. And then the word himself comes and he proclaims that he is the word. And the word accomplishes his task and he reigns now supreme and he has set apart gifts, namely men, to preach the word. Christ is pleased to continue to spread his glory, to continue to spread his light by way of the ministry of the word. That's why many of the commentators highlight that an application for what we see with John is the importance of the ministry of the word. The necessity of the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth is by way of the ministry 
of the word. And primarily when the church gathers and the gospel is proclaimed. Christ is at the right hand of God the Father in his human nature. There is a current absence. The spirit has been poured out. And there is this present ministry where Christ still ministers. Brother, when we come to hear the word of God, Christ is ministering to you, isn't he? When you come to sing psalms and songs to heaven, even ones about thrusting through your enemies, they are still nonetheless songs to God and God speaks through them. If you paid attention to what we were singing uh, in that psalm, it was an interesting choice, wasn't it, for today? But I looked at the light aspect, the shining light, the shining lamp. God can help us do anything, even defeat our enemies, namely uh, sin that we are still dealing with. But the point is God feeds us with his word. The point is God has set apart men to be the ones who feed his flock. That's why, as you all know, I have a big problem with men who are self-appointed. We need men who've been sent by God, men who've been chosen by God. John the Baptist has an extraordinary call, doesn't he? I mean, it is the angel of the Lord comes to his father and says, here's what's going to happen. That is not the case when it comes to ministers. It is an ordinary call. I did not have an angel from heaven speak to me and say, Mike, you're going to be a pastor in Surrey Reform. This is, that's not how it works. There was this desire born out of right motives, this desire to preach the word of God. And, you know, then you start to think about that. What does that look like? What does that mean? And then, then you perhaps God opens up doors and gives you the mental gifts and the, you know, the, the speaking gifts. All those things are important when it comes to the, the ministry of the word. And then it has to be affirmed by the church, right? The church has to affirm it. The church has to make sure that everything is okay. The church has to make sure uh, that all things are in order and faithful men are truly needed. You know, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And so we do need men. We want men to be raised up, but there has to, all those things have to be in place, doesn't it? It's very hard when you read the, the qualifications and the time that it takes. All those things must be in order. And one thing that is very important that I think really highlights the point of that John, the author, is trying to make with John the Baptist here is that ministers are not Christ. There is that we have to recognize and have a sober recognition of the gifts, but also recognize that God could continue the ministry without me or without you. We can't be so impressed with ourselves that we think God cannot do it without us. We need to just be faithful to what God has called us to do, whatever, wherever we are. If you have a job, work hard on that job, come to church. That's what God has called you to do. That is God's plan for your life. When it comes to if you have a family, care for them. That is what God has called you to do. Not everybody has to be in the ministry. And I would suggest if you're thinking about the ministry, please don't. Please think of something else Please run away from the ministry because it is a difficult job. Whereas the harvest is plentiful, labors are few, and I do believe God will raise up those men in due time. But sometimes you have to deter people sometimes because it is a difficult thing and a difficult task. I know it sounds weird, right? I'm saying we need people, but I'm trying to deter men. Yeah, kind of. I mean, but I certainly want men. I want men. And certainly as time unfolds, God will reveal those very things, but we want to make sure that those men who are called are in the ministry, 
but also make sure men who are not called are not in the ministry. But the word is needed. We need faithful men. We need people who love the ministry of the word. Uh, we need people who faithfully attend the ministry of the word, uh, because as our confession says in chapter 14, I'm going to read from the Westminster uh, here, but it does say, it's the same thing in our confession, the grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. The spirit works with the word as the gospel goes forth, by which also and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. You want to grow in Christ being under the ministry of the word. You want sinners to be saved, bring them to the ministry of the word. Now, the church is primarily for the church. It's for Christians. But nonetheless, it is where the gospel is proclaimed, hopefully, uh, Lord willing. We want there to be a true witness. We want to be a shining witness concerning who Christ is and the whole counsel of God as it is laid forth in the scriptures. But the point is the necessity of the ministry of the word for the salvation of souls, for the growth of the Christian, we need to be under the ministry of the word because we are not the light. We proclaim the light. So there's the witness of the light, men, the church, Christ himself, but then there's the identity of that true light. And this is what we see in verses eight and nine. So we've seen the witness. Now we transition to deal with the identity of the light. And John is emphatic. He's already been emphatic in a few ways. He repeats himself because we need things repeated uh, to us often, don't we? Paul even says in Philippians chapter 3, I write the same things to you because it is for your safety. We need to hear the same things over and over again because we forget the same things over and over and over again. John has already said he was in the beginning, uh, was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Okay, he was in the beginning with God, to emphasize that. He really is the creator. He really is the one who is eternal. And he does something similar here. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. He just said that. Why does he need to say that again? Well, number one, this would have been read, and most people didn't have Bibles and phones and things that they could pull up to read. It was an oral oral culture. It was word and what people heard. And so it's a blessing to be able to read, by the way, to have the word of God, to read it. And we have it on our shelves and we take that for granted, but they did not have that. And so it had to be read. So they would have heard it again. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Again, ministers are not Christ, but they proclaim Christ. If a pastor stops proclaiming Christ, whom does he proclaim then? Whom does he promote? If a church does not proclaim Christ, is it really a church at all? And I surmise, dear brethren, uh, just thinking about the times I've been to other churches on a holiday, being times in other churches when I was actually attending them, how often do churches actually have a gospel call? How often do churches actually say, here's how you're awful, Here's how you're sinful, but there is a remedy in Christ Jesus, even conservative churches. I might sound like I'm tooting my own horn, and I'm going to be honest with you, I kind of am tooting uh, my own horn, because I learned from a dear friend out in Chilliwack. He proclaims Christ almost every service. He has this gospel call, you're a wretch, 
Here is the Savior. Here is Christ Jesus. The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not I surrender all to Jesus, all to him I freely give. No, it is look to Christ because you never can surrender all to Jesus. You do not love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. It is Christ Jesus who did. And it's because of him you can have everlasting life. It's because of what he has done. That's why we proclaim Christ. We want unbelievers to feel a bit uncomfortable, don't we? We want them to see that they're sinful and they need Christ. Other churches are like, if you're new to church, if you're new, we want to... No, here's why you need... Here's your problem. Here is the Savior. We want to be nice, by the way. I'm not saying we don't say hi to people. I'm just saying when the word goes forth, we, people need to feel a bit uncomfortable because they come into another country. Here's how you're sinful, and here is the remedy for that sin. One writer says, above, the evangelist considered the divinity of the word. Where he begins to consider the incarnation, uh, here he begins to consider the incarnation of the word. And he does two things concerning this. First, he treats of the witness to the incarnate word, or the precursor. Secondly, of the coming of the word. As to the first, he does two things. First, he describes the precursor who comes to bear witness. And secondly, he shows that he was incapable of the work of salvation. Brethren, you and I are incapable of the work of salvation. We need to understand that. That's what we have to do according to what God has said. God is going to save with the word, will he not? He's going to save with that gospel. What is that gospel? Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Do you believe it? Is that whom you proclaim? The gospel is something to be proclaimed. We live in light of the gospel. We don't preach the gospel and when necessary use words. Blot that out of your mind. That's a terrible quote because the gospel is not what we do. The gospel is what Jesus has done. And John the Baptist is bearing witness concerning the light. And what's the church supposed to do? Bear witness concerning the light. Now, there are many witnesses in John. There is the triune God. There are the works of Christ. There's John the Baptist. There are human witnesses. Certainly, we see Jesus expound this more in John 8, but especially in John 5. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. He's just talking as a man, because in John 8, he says, my witness is true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things, that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard this vo his voice at any time nor seen his form because no one can see God at any time, right? Only the son who is in the bosom of the father, he declares him. But you've not ha you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think they have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. There's this witness, clear witness by many, clear witness by the Father, clear witness by the Son, clear witness by men 
and men still nonetheless reject it. But the point John is trying to make here, the author of John, is that John the Baptist is a shining and burning light, but he is not the true light. His purpose was to bear witness concerning Christ. Morris says, he goes on to repeat the truth that John came to bear witness. That was the whole reason for his appearance. That was why he was sent from God. Those who did not see this were misinterpreting his whole mission. He is not Christ, but he proclaims the Christ. Because, as verse 9 says, that was, that is talking about Jesus, the word. In fact, Jesus Christ hasn't even been said yet in this prologue. It doesn't come till verse 17, but we know because we've read it before. But we know, see, it's the word, the word who is the true light. We've seen how he is the true light in verses 4 and 5. And we see this one is the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Again, John is light, is a light, but he is a lesser light. Christ is the true light who has come. We see he is the light of creation. He is the one who shines, and he's also the light of new creation. And so in verse 9 here, it's primarily speaking about his incarnation. He was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. How does Christ shine as a light? Well, I think like we saw in verses 3 and 5, it can refer to himself as God who shines in the light of nature. God has left man without excuse, Romans chapter 1. God has left man without excuse, Romans chapter 1. All men everywhere know that there is a God. The problem is it's suppressed. The problem is it's distorted. The problem is man loves idols rather than the true and living God. So it leaves man without excuse before God most high. But he also shines his light as the God-man. He shines in his incarnation, and he does continue to shine through the word of God and the church as it goes forth. But we see his proclamation does reach to the ends of the earth, but every man coming into the world uh, probably does refer initially to that uh, general revelation type light, but then also every man, uh, every uh, man coming into the world, he, as he interacts with man, every type of man, Jew or Gentile, that he really does spread the gospel. He is speaking that gospel. And so the point is, it's not that man has believed upon him, but as the gospel spreads, and as his ministry spreads, we see that man is even more without excuse. Man has never been without excuse, but man is really now without excuse, now as this new creation has spread to the ends of the earth. You know, a heathen in the bush, yes, they haven't had the word of God, but they are without excuse. Not, uh, there is a greater culpability, we could say, for those that grew up in the church and heard the gospel proclaimed to them, and they never believed because they heard the light, they heard the truth. It's not as though they believed upon that light, but that light shone, and what did they do? They rejected it. I think we see this in Hebrews 6, because the similar language of shining is used there, the illumining. It's not as though people actually believe, but it's the word that went forth. I know Hebrews 6 is tough. Armenians like to go there and say, see, someone can fall away, but I think verses 7 and 8 are key. But we see in verse 4, it is impossible for those who are once enlightened. So they've, they've, they've been illumined. They've seen the word of God. They've, they've heard it, but they haven't actually believed, as we'll see in verses 7 and 8. They've tasted it. They, they came to church. They, they were there when the word went forth. They heard the hymns sung and became partakers of the Holy Spirit. Didn't actually have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works in and amongst the church. 
and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come because the church is the age to come. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucified again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. But verses 7 and 8. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes up upon it and bears herbs useful of those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. You know what's in the background probably here? Or probably in the background here? It is the parable of the sower. The word goes forth, the word is spread, and there is one positive response. There are three ones that show one was not a believer, right? There's the bird you know, on the path, and the birds snatch it up. There's in the shallow soil, they spring up, but the sun burns them. There are those who are spread amongst the thorn, but they are, you know, choked out. There's only one that actually bears fruit, that there actually might be some uh, who look like they're Christians, who've come in, it's great, but there's this longevity that needs to be involved. We talked about temporary believers on Wednesday night from the Second London Confession. There is a difference between a temporary believer and a true believer. You know what the difference is? You believe upon Christ. You're not relying upon yourself. You're not relying upon your parents. You're not saying, I went to church, therefore. No, it is Christ alone. That's why we tell kids to believe upon Christ alone. Look to him and you shall have life everlasting. But it is the case, those can, they hear the word. And so Christ has spread his glory to the ends of the earth. Christ, when he came, he shines as a light. But as we see in verses 10 through 13, there are many that do reject him. We know that for one to truly believe, to illumine the heart, according to verse 10, it must be spiritually wrought. It must be what God does, not of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, not of blood, but of God who brings about this saving work in the hearts and lives of his people. And he shines in that world. He shines in that place. Now, the reason world is mentioned here, probably several reasons. One, it highlights that Jesus' is coming, or the Son's coming, is not fleeting. It's not as though he just appears and then he's gone. He's going to be on the earth for 33 years, or 30 years, however long you, old you think he is. He's going to be on the earth. And then he's going to ascend into heaven, he's going to live forever. But his time on earth is not fleeting. He has come, and he shines, and he continues to shine even now. And the idea of world does carry with it differing uh, meanings in the Gospel of John. It can mean the whole world, which we saw in verses 3 through 5. It can refer to men as a whole. It can refer to the sinfulness of man. Because Jesus does say he doesn't pray for the world in John 17, right? He doesn't pray for the world, but he prays for his disciples. So there's clearly different types of meanings that go on. It can refer to the Gentiles. To a Jew, the world is the Gentiles. We see this in John chapter 12. The world is going to him. And then we see some Greeks came up to to Jerusalem and said, Sir, we wish to see, or they came to Bethsaida of Galilee and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You know, the Pharisees are concerned that they are, they are go, the world is going out to him, and then here come these Greeks who come and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so we see that perhaps the idea could be in the, the, the last way, the Gentile way, but we do see it's Christ who's come to his world. He shines in it as the gospel spreads and the problem is man rejects it because that's what we'll see next time he was in the world 
The world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, his, his, the Jews, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. If you're an unbeliever here today, believe in his name. There's the necessity of the ministry of the word. But we, all of what we've talked about highlights the content. What is the purpose? What is it that we proclaim? We proclaim Christ. We proclaim the whole word. The way in which the church shines, as we saw in Isaiah 60, that city that shines is a church that preaches Christ Jesus. I hope and pray we always do that, brethren. If I stop, as I've said before, please fire me and find somebody else who will do that. As we plant churches, the hope is we plant churches where the gospel is spread to the end. The gospel is proclaimed. They're the local churches, the shining light in that locale. The hope is that people hear the word and they are saved, that they hear Christ and they are nourished and strengthened because it is Christ who is the light and Christ who is the light of the world continues to shine through his church. We shine as a light, but our light is reflected. He is the true light. Our light is meant to reflect what he has done in us. The church is meant to reflect and proclaim the goodness of the Savior because he is that shining light who shines through his people. The church's mission isn't to redeem the world, is it? It is to point people to the light who redeems. That's our purpose. We're not going to save anything. Only God can. Only Christ does, and he is the one that we proclaim. The question is, have you believed upon the light? Do you know that you are in the light? Do you warm yourself in the sun of righteousness week by week, day by day? Do you warm yourself in Christ? Believers need to hear the gospel again and again and again and again because Christ is that light. He's the son of righteousness. In him, there is healing in his wings and there is healing for the people of God as we march through this world filled with sadness and sorrow, but there is warmth in the sun of righteousness. And if you're an unbeliever, believe on Christ. You're a wretch, you're a sinner. You need to believe upon him. Believe in his name. Look to him. Believe that he lived, died, and rose again, and you shall have life. You shall have healing in the sun of righteousness. And let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for Christ who is the light and he is the light of the world who shines in the darkness and thank you that he has shone in the world and even he shines now in the world as churches are called to be that city on a hill. Churches are his body who are meant to spread his glory. We know, O oh Lord, that we are just uh, ones who reflect and ought to reflect the shining light who is Christ and we ask and pray that we would. We ask and pray that we would be faithful as a church, as an institution, that we'd be faithful to the word of God and, and Christ Jesus and what he has done to proclaim the mysteries of Christ and that blessed gospel of free and sovereign grace. We ask as people who've been redeemed by that blessed gospel that we would live in light of the gospel, that we live in a manner consistent with the gospel, and that as we seek to grow in the gospel and grow in the word, and grow in our Christian life, that we would be a people who loves the ministry of the word, who loves to hear the word preached, who loves to hear Christ, uh, who loves to be under the word, to sing the word, to pray the word, to hear it preached, and even to uh, partake of it in the Lord's Supper. We're thankful that you do cause us to grow in these ways. These are your means, 
and we're thankful that it is about Christ. Please forgive us for our pride. Please forgive us for thinking that you um, couldn't do anything without us. Please help us to know and to be humbled to know that um, you are God and you are pleased to redeem us. You are pleased to set apart men. You are pleased to uh, give gifts to your church. And we do ask and pray that you would in this place. We ask and pray that you would raise up faithful men, that you would bring the right men uh, to be faithful elders, that you would deter the wrong men who should not be elders. And we are thankful, O oh Lord, that you will give wisdom to our church. And we are thankful for how you've sustained us these past six years. But we do ask and pray that you would raise up preachers, raise up elders, raise up men uh, according to the qualifications that we see in the scriptures and men who are faithful uh, to Christ Jesus. So thank you for all that you've done. Thank you that you nourish and strengthen your people. And we ask and pray that you would help us to shine as lights. And thank you for Christ, who is the son of righteousness. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ.